This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we're talking about the different types of volcanoes on the Colorado Plateau, where they are, how they form, and when they will be active again. It's a good show. Stay with us. I like restricting my hypotheses to those that are testable and requiring it that I have to have evidence for the argument. And if I don't have evidence, I have to say, I don't know. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Dr. Michael Ort, a volcanologist from Northern Arizona University. Dr. Ort is interested in all things volcanic, from the processes of eruption to the geochemistry of volcanoes. Here, Dr. Ort talks about the different kinds of volcanoes on the Colorado Plateau, why they erupt, and when they might erupt again. We begin our interview with Dr. Ort describing the most common types of volcanoes you can find in this region. The most common kind here is actually the most common kind on Earth, which those are scoria cones or cinder cones. They are usually sort of one-shot wonders. They, they erupt, they have their eruption however long it goes, days to, to months typically, and then, uh, and then they're done. And... There are single shots of magma coming up from the mantle that's probably related to that there's actually sort of a limit to how much magma is going to come up in a single shot. And so it comes off the mantle and you get enough magma all together. And when there's enough of it, it starts up to the surface and then sort of the, the back end of it sort of closes back off because it's got all this pressure on it. It closes off there and so you've got this little pod of, of magma moving up and that gives you a finite size for that eruption because those make it to the surface and erupt. And so you look around and you see cinder cones are kind of, there's sort of a range of size. They don't get a whole lot bigger than that and they don't get a whole lot smaller than that. And that's sort of, they've got this range and that's probably related to the, the size of the, the magma pod that comes up. So those, those make those scoria cones and they're, they're all over the, the southern margin of the Colorado Plateau from like the Uinkaret volcanic field and uh, Whitcomb Wash and, and, and all the, the lava flows that you see in the Grand Canyon. And then they step down. The recent ones are here in the San Francisco volcanic field, but there's some that are just only a little bit older that are sort of outboard going slightly towards the desert from here. And then you go out east to the Okate, and then the farthest east volcanism in North America is, is out there, the Raton-Clayton uh, volcanic field, and there's lava flows that make it just, just to the Oklahoma border. So anyway, there's a whole lot of that all along the southern border. Um, and there's a few scattered ones within the Colorado Plateau. There's one outside of Glenwood Springs, for instance, scattering maybe three or four of them actually there. There's some outside of Salt Lake, Pavant Butte, they actually came up through the lake. And then there's this other kind that's basically, it's the same thing as one of these scoria cones, except that they 
when they got close to the surface, they hit groundwater, or in some cases, surface water, and they flash that to, to vapor, and that volume expansion makes big explosions. So you end up making these big craters in the ground, and the Hopi Buttes that are sort of north of Winslow and, and Holbrook, Joseph City, mostly on Navajo land, a little bit on Hopi land and a little bit on state land south of the, the Navajo land. Uh, and there's the Navajo volcanic field is also like that. That's like ship rock in those. And so those cases, they hit water and that flashing starts making these things explode. And then they, they kind of dig their way down and they make these ice cream cones going down into the, the ground these cones of, of really disrupted, broken up rock. And the water keeps pouring in there and the dikes keep on moving their way up through this jumble of rock and this, this ice cream cone. And then when the explosions are close enough to the surface, they, they blast out, making these big explosions that go out for you know a couple of miles from the volcano, pretty much devastating everything around it. When the explosions happen a little deeper down, all you get is kind of a whoop. Stuff sitting on top of it, holding it down. But those are similar in size to uh, the, the scoria cones or cinder cones. The big one outside of Flagstaff here, San Francisco Mountain, that's a big stratovolcano. Uh, and that's one where, the, I was saying there was like this, there's a, like a magma pod size coming up. But if those stall out in the crust, at, you know, a few kilometers down, they stall out there and another one comes in and joins it and another one comes in and joins it and gradually they can get bigger. So they don't, they're in that case, by having a sort of an intermediate reservoir they don't get stuck with just being the one pod. To make a basalt, basically, if it stalls out in the crust, it changes composition. I'll explain that in a minute. But that's why the, the scoria cones that come up, they, if they don't make it to the surface, they're probably not going to make a scoria cone if they don't make it to the surface in one shot because otherwise they're going to sit in the crust and change composition and then they don't make scoria cones. But these other ones, they come up, and to get enough of them, some, for some reason, the magma is, is focused. We think around here it might be related to some very old faults related to when the crust, the, the, the continental crust was forming here like 1.65, 1.7 billion years ago. There were faults associated with that. And those might be sort of focusing the magmatism along them. And then there's enough of them and they stall out there. But then there's another one coming behind. They keep on coming. What is stalling them? Well, there's a few different possibilities. Probably... What's stalling them is some layer in the crust is of a density similar to theirs, and they basically reach a, a neutral buoyancy, and they kind of stall out. But if you get enough of them shooting through there, they heat up the crust around them, and then it gets mushy. And it, what's hard to do is it's hard to take a liquid and, and, and propagate it as a dike through another thing that's a mush. You think about like taking... I don't know, pouring coffee into, in, into a chocolate milkshake, which is a good thing to do, right? But you pour it in there, and it doesn't, like, it doesn't just keep pouring all the way down if it's the same temperature. And if, it, if it's really hot, it'll, it'll melt its way down. And that partly happens with the magma coming up. But mostly it pours in there, and it kind of just kind of doesn't really do much. And, and in this case, it probably what happens is, is it comes up and it, it's melted enough crust, it's hard for it to break it anymore, so it's kind of mushy and it spreads out and goes through chunks this way and chunks that way and it gradually stalls. And now it's added all of its heat to the already mushy zone. Now it's even mushier. And the next one coming up, it's pure mush. And they come in and then they just can't propagate through it. They just add to it and they keep it hot. And it gradually gets bigger that way. So you're melting the crust, which adds particularly important is silica 
to the magma, raising the amount of silica to it, because that's the dominant. I mean, that's the dominant element okay. in it, which is sort of irrelevant, except that that matters because the silica atoms they make these things called polymers, and you can think of them like um, ice skaters in an ice skating rink. And you got the ice skaters; they're silicas and oxygens, and they're sort of the the 17-year-old, you know, high school juniors and seniors who hold hands and they're skating <laughs> along and they're all in love with each other, right? And a few of them get together and they think they're so cool because they're, you know, they're, they're holding hands, skating around. And then you got the 14-year-old younger brothers and, and they come in there and they bomb through them, breaking the, their, their, their hand holding, right? That's water. Okay, so you've got two different things going on. The hand holders, what they're doing is they're, they're clogging up the ice rink. And they're increasing the viscosity of the people. It makes it much harder for anything else to get past. They slow everybody else down. Okay? So that's one kind of jerk. And that's, that's, those are the ones that are slowing things down. Well, the silicon oxygens do that in the magma. So the more silica, when you're up at a rhyolite, 75% silica dioxide, there's so much of these guys in there, they make it super viscous. It's really, it's, it doesn't move very easily. Basalts move much more easily. Not so many of them holding hands. Then if you add water to it, what water does is, it's the 14-year-old, it breaks up those silica oxygen bonds and makes, it lowers the viscosity. That makes sense? Yeah. So if we do that, then we've got the basalt coming up, it's fairly low viscosity, and it makes, most of the time, make, or sometimes makes it to the surface, makes the scoriacone. Sometimes it stalls out. If it stalls out, what happens is it melts the crust around it, and also crystals fall out of it, and the crystals that fall out of it are really low in silica, and so they leave behind a magma that's higher in silica. So those two processes both increase the amount of silica and oxygen in it. So the longer it sits there in the crust, the more viscous it becomes. Mm -hmm. But water doesn't have anywhere to go either. And so water also gets concentrated there. And those are the 14-year-olds that make it less viscous. But then what happens is as it starts moving towards the surface, you're taking the pressure off of it. And when you start taking the pressure off of it, it's like opening up your bottle of Coke. All those bubbles that come out, well, the water is doing the same thing. And so when the water comes out, it starts making it bubbly. And in some cases, if it's rising quickly, what you get is pumice. Okay, and that blows out explosively because the gas is, is expanding and it gives it a big explosion. If it comes up slowly, those bubbles can get out ahead of it and go off either into the country rock or they can get out at the surface. Now there's no 14-year-olds to break them up. And so all those, those romantic 17-year-olds are holding hands, and they make it a really viscous magma coming up. So that gives us these really big steep sides. When it's a slow-moving eruption, slow-ascending eruption, comes up and it makes these lava flows that don't flow out very well, and they pile up really steeply. And when it's explosive, they produce this great amount of pumice, and... and when you're coming, when you're, you're on your commute sometimes between, between Moab and, and, and Flagstaff, when you're coming up from Cameron and you're heading up towards that summit pass near, near uh, Sunset Crater, right at the 6,000-foot marker on the road, if you pull over right there and get off the road so the, the highway patrol doesn't get mad at you, there's these huge piles of pumice there. And those came from an explosion up on San Francisco Mountain that blew out in that direction and, and, and deposited several meters of, of pumice out there. And then they dug it all up because they used it in, the, in Glen Canyon Dale because oh. they, needed, they needed stuff in there that would be hard and fairly strong but lightweight because they're putting it 900 feet tall. 
So anyway, so we've got those, the stratovolcanoes, and then there's domes. And domes are simply when it's really viscous. All the water got out in advance of it, and it comes up to the surface, and it just piles up. And so around here, we got Kendrick, but there's domes all over the, the southern Colorado Plateau. Oh, and one more kind of volcano I never told you oh, about. Oh, yeah. The, the Caldera de Valle is called, is a huge one. And that's a place where different reasons, but different faults and things probably focus the magma in one place. And magma just kept coming up and kept coming up. It created this huge magma mush. And then finally enough basalt came in to turn that into a big eruption. And it did that a couple of times. Yeah. And so you have, you know, what a, it's probably 15, 20 mile wide caldera there that just it all fell into the magma chamber after it ejected this huge amount of stuff that's sort of the biggest ones there is a lot of activity there was at least a lot of activity here why why here in a way it's concentrated in a way you could say well it's not concentrated so so back in in the 80s there was actually a paper published on the san francisco volcanic field where they were arguing it was a hot spot the idea was a mag there was a magma source down deep in the mantle stationary and the plate was moving over it and the continental plate here was moving over it, and this is basically burning a hole in it and sending up magma. And, and in fact, you know, the, the evidence for it was that the magmatism is about uh, six million years old in, in the, the southwestern part of the field, and it's modern, you know, 900 years ago in the northeastern part of the field. And you figure that out, that's about plate motion. And so they were thinking, okay, the plate's moving over, and it's a hot spot. And that's great, except for the fact that it completely ignores that you know, there's the Uinkaret volcanic field on the other side of the Grand Canyon, and that has eruptions that are as young as Sunset Crater, nine, you know, 900 years old in it. And then we've got really young eruptions all along the, the southern part of the Colorado Plateau, going all the way out to practically to Oklahoma. So, you know, you can't have a spot if you've got a thousand kilometers or more. And so a lot of us had trouble with that, but we didn't have a great idea of, of what else could be working with it. And now there's, a, there's various permutations. There's like three or four different active ideas on this right now. But they're all permutations on the idea that what there, there was subduction, which is the, the oceanic plate going underneath the continental plate. And, and that was happening, you know, 30 million years ago. And that's what gave us um, the San Juan mountains, which are all volcanic. It gave us the Mogollon Datil field going south in, in New Mexico down to the Sierra Madre Occidental in, in Mexico. And all of that area was a huge volcanic range like the Andes. But the thing about that is, is that means you've got this subducting plate is going down way off coast somewhere. Not California coast was a little inland of where it is now, but it was still in California. So it had to go way down under. That meant that you basically are shaving off the bottom of the the continental plate. There's a part of the continental plate is, is crust, and part of the continental plate is is mantle that's just sort of stuck up onto it and, and is, is, is really usually pretty well pegged on there. But this is shaving off some of it, so that's fine, but then it stopped. And so some of the mantle seems to have stuck up onto the crust again. Then more recently, it seems to be falling back off. And so these various permutations are on how it's falling off in different ways. Is it dripping off? Is it falling off as slabs? But bits of it are, are falling off. And those parts that were there were shielding this section from really hot mantle. And if those fall off, really hot mantle wells up. And as pressure is released on that, and part of it melts, it comes up. Oh, that's so interesting. And, and so that gives you volcanism all along the edge here because the, pot, the plateau, it seems to be peeling off 
the southern bit of the plateau, and it might work its way farther inland plateau with time. And it kind of makes sense if you look at it that, you know, going south of the plateau into what we call the transition zone, there's older volcanism that's now all faulted and down-dropped into the Verde Valley and places. And then it gets progressively younger as you get up onto the plateau. Because presumably it fell off earlier? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that would be the interpretation. Yeah. And the the plateau, you know, you get up onto the plateau at what's called the Mogollon Rim, but the geophysical boundary where the mantle really changes and distance to the mantle really changes is actually, it's just on the north side of San Francisco Mountain here. It's actually, what whatever that is, you know, 20 miles or so inland okay. of where the topographic margin is right. of the Colorado Plateau. So that's telling us that that's moving and then the plateau is, is responding to that after these things happen in the mantle, then the surface is sort of responding a little bit later. So this is still happening. Presumably pieces of the mantle are still falling. Does that mean that volcanoes are still going to happen in the future? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I would be, well, I, I cannot come up with any reason why they wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, it's only been 930 years since the last eruption at sunset. There was an eruption up on the north rim in the Uinkaret Plateau that has potsherds in it that date between 1050 and 1200 mm. A.D. You know, Zuni Salt Lake is quite young. There's a bunch of really young flows around. And it's just, it would make no sense to say, well, we've had all these, and it stopped. Right. For some reason, just boom. Yeah. You know, with no evidence of it slowing down. It just stopped. We don't know of any instance like that. Why would we expect it here? So it'll happen again. One of the guys I work with actually uh, just published a paper talking about an earthquake swarm near sunset where he thinks might have been a, an actual intrusion back in 2009. So that was one, that was a, a cinder cone, a scoria cone, where the magma stalled out, which happens a lot. You probably have more intrusions, shallow intrusions, than you actually have eruptions. And then remind me again, so what's happening with the intrusion? It's, it's stalling. Does, is anything happening then on the surface after that stall? Probably not. Probably not. Probably not. Depends on how close it was to the surface. There might be a slight uplift. Okay. There was a small intrusion, actually probably a decent-sized intrusion near Bend in Oregon, and it was like a 20-kilometer diameter area that rose, you know, 10 centimeters, you know, 4 inches. You could see it with satellites. Yeah. No one else would notice. So there's an intrusion. Does that mean that everything, all of the pressure is then dissipated, or is it still sitting there? Well, the magma is still sitting, it's still sitting there. there, and then it cools, and as it cools, it, it actually shrinks a little bit. Okay. So it goes up, and then it usually comes down. Are there warning signs or predictive capabilities for these scoria cones? Scoria cones are tough. A friend of mine and I have, have looked at, at trying to look at just scoria cones across the west or south of Idaho. We came up with a recurrence interval of something like seven or 800 years. But the, the big deal was, is you, so that's like a regular stratovolcano in the Cascades as far as eruptive rates, except that you've got an, you know, this huge area, and it could have an, you know, practically anywhere in that. And so that leaves you with, it's pretty hard to know where to monitor. So yes, there'd probably be signs. There'd probably be earthquakes and events. There'd probably be a little bit of ground deformation. It'd probably rise a little bit. It's possible you might even get some hot springs or you might get gas coming out. But it's going to be one of those chances where somebody's going to notice something's different. Because realistically, you can't monitor this whole area. We have a couple of seismometers in the San Francisco volcanic field. You know, maybe they'd notice. I'm interested in what got you interested in studying volcanology. 
I wasn't a volcanologist. I was um, I was a senior studying Spanish lit, and I had um, been painting houses and to to make my way through school. And um, I didn't go back to school that fall. I just you know I was painting houses. And I'm going you know I you know what I want to do. I I love Spanish literature. I love the Spanish language and all, but. I don't see a job for me that really is doing what I want to do. And so I was kind of, I was going to take a little time and think about it. So I got on a bus and ended up in Bolivia a few months later. And um, along the way, I climbed a bunch of volcanoes. I thought, this is cool. I like being up on volcanoes. I wonder what I could do with that. And um, I found out that involves geology. I didn't know that. I was pretty out of it. Um, and uh, so I went back to school, started all over started taking math and chemistry and physics and all that stuff and worked my way through and um, got a geology degree. Still two classes short of a Spanish degree. Then I worked for the USGS in the mapping in the North Cascades. So I got to work on some volcanoes and a bunch of other kind of rocks too. And then I did a PhD in Argentina on the border of Argentina and Bolivia. And then I um, came here. I've been studying volcanoes ever since. What do you enjoy about being a scientist? I like restricting my hypotheses to those that are testable and requiring it that I have to have evidence for the argument. And if I don't have evidence, I have to say, I don't know. And I like that. I like the rigor of that. that you can't make things up. You just have, you have to go with what you've got. And if you can't come up with a decent hypothesis... Great. That's the way it is. If you can't come up with a decent hypothesis and then it gets you, you prove it wrong, you gotta accept that. You know, there's a rigor and sort of honesty to it that I, I really like. To listen to this show with Dr. Michael Ort or any past shows, visit KZMU.org, iTunes or Stitcher. Theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.